If you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 20. That's where we're going to be. Joshua is the sixth book in to your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. That's where we're going to be. Joshua 20 and 21. We're going to look at all of 20, the end of 21. Next week, we're going to finish our study in Joshua, and then the week after that, we're going to start a series in 1 Thessalonians, which will be so fun. We're going to like that, all right? 1 Thessalonians. Um, But before we get into that, as you're turning there, I need to tell you something. I am from Abilene, Texas. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's probably the first time that's ever happened to anybody announce announcing that. But I, I say that to say, um, yeah, so I grew up there. It's a special place to me. And the thing is, I know things about Abilene, Texas that most people don't know. I mean, I, I mean unless you're from Abilene. And if you're from Abilene, you know all these things too. So, so the name Abilene um, actually comes from the Bible. Bet you didn't know that. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, the announcement of John the Baptist's ministry, uh, it's laying out the setting and the context, and Abilene is right there. It's being named. I know all of the uh, Olympic athletes, at least all their names, that have come from Abilene, Texas. I I know all the Major League Baseball players. I can tell you the NFL football players. I can tell you... Uh, the uh, uh, NBA players that have come from Abilene. I, here's something you probably didn't know. Somebody sitting there going, I no, and I didn't care. But uh, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey's boyfriend, Stedman Graham, Abilene, Texas. At least he went to college there. Of course, that college won't claim it, but anyways, that's, uh, that's there. I, I can tell you the famous musicians, uh, the famous criminals, we have our fair share of famous criminals. I can tell you World War II, you probably didn't know this, Abilene actually had a POW, German POW camp. It was a place where German prisoners of war were kept, 865 total. Two weeks after it was opened that they received the prisoners, 12 escaped from the place, Kind of an embarrassment. Uh, and they ended up dying out just south of Abilene in, in the like wilderness. Uh, like, where, they, where are, we? are we? And um, I, I know all the best barbecue places. I can tell you where to get the best, best breakfast taco. I can give you directions to Perini Ranch, which is George W. Bush's favorite steakhouse. Town special to me. I know all kinds of things about it. There's probably, for you, there's a special town. There's a place. Something comes to your mind, and maybe it's where you've spent a lot of time. Maybe it's a place you've studied, you admire, you can't wait to go to. But you think is special, and that's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about some special towns. That's what Joshua 20 and 21 is all about. About and, and they're special, we find out, for a reason. They are, they are divinely appointed. There's a divine reason that these towns are special. And what is special about these towns to the Israelites in the time that they get you know, established 
casts a shadow that we live in even today. The divine purpose of these cities of refuge point to the day and time in which we live. So to argue that, let me do this. Let me read Joshua chapter 20. We're going to read the first six verses. We'll, we'll look at the rest of it in just a minute, but let's read it. And then I'm going to pray that the Lord will help us this morning. And then I want to talk about it. Joshua chapter 20, beginning verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, those I spoke to Moses about, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of the cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time, then the manslayer may return to his town and his own home to the town from which he fled. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. As we consider the cities of refuge, Father, the temptation in a chapter like this is to immediately write it off and go, well, that's a different time. That's days gone by. Father, it's be just like us to focus in on the particulars and think this doesn't apply to me. I haven't killed anybody on purpose or on accident. And yet, Father, this speaks to a need that goes even deeper and a need that we all feel this morning. That is that we find ourselves sometimes running for our lives or looking for refuge. In need to be in your strong arms. And, and so, Father, I pray you'd help us, draw us this morning to your Son, Christ. We ask this the only way we can. In Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, the land is, so the land, just to remind you, it's been conquered. That's what Joshua is all about, the first 12 chapters anyway. And the, the generation that wandered in the wilderness, they get left behind and their children, the next generation. They go in, they conquer this land, this promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And then beginning in about chapter 13, we see that this conquered land now is going to be divided. Each tribe is going to get a certain allotment of land. Some tribes will get bigger allotments than other tribes. 
All of it is according to what God had promised. Actually, it goes back to God's promise through Jacob. Genesis 49 on his deathbed as he blesses his sons. And then the Lord comes and fills in the details to Moses. And now Joshua is fulfilling all of it, all the things that the Lord had promised, the Lord said go and do. And now we come to the end and there's one final allotment. But it's a different kind of allotment. It's allotment for the priestly nation, for the Levites. And, and they don't get any certain portion of land like the other nations do, but they are going to get a portion of each of the lands. There are going to be these cities that are set aside amongst each of the tribes, 48 in all. In fact, it'll be said that, that if you were an Israelite, you were never, you, you never lived further than 10 miles from one of these priestly cities. One of these cities that administered the justice of God, that provided the mercy of God, that spoke of the grace of God, that, that instructed you in the worship of God. And six of the 48 cities are what are called cities of refuge. And that's where Joshua is here in, in Joshua chapter 20, that before they go any further, before everybody leaves and disperses and goes and, and begins to possess the land that they've been given, they need to know about these sanctuary cities, these uh, cities of refuge. In the context, you, you need to make a note because you'll be here and you, you'll think, well, I, Jenna, Joshua 20, I don't know anything about this. Well, all the details of the cities of refuge, God tells to Moses in Numbers chapter 35. We're not going to turn there this morning, but I'll give you some highlights. The context, when God is instructing Moses, the context is this. Sometimes accidents happen. Sometimes unexpected and premature and tragic accidents happen. Many of us have experienced that. And, and so there are these specifics that are given. Because if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, you, you go back to, to Genesis chapter 4, you find when Cain slays his brother Abel, you find out from the text that the ground, the earth itself, cries out for justice on behalf of the blood that was spilt. And so you find, you see, very beginning there's this principle that says... We are made in the image of God. If you shed the blood of man, if you shed the blood of those that are created in the image of God, there has to be atonement made. It speaks to the high value of the, what it means that we're created in the image of God. It speaks to the high value of the sanctity of life. We don't get to say, is life precious or useful anymore? We honor life because of what image it bears.
And you know, by the way, just, just a by the way here, I didn't say this first service. I feel like I got all afternoon now. <laughs> Some of you in here need to be reminded of that. And, and I think it goes down to the simple place. Some of you in here, there's a great book, uh, author I like. I'll say his name. Somebody will email me. He's like, don't you know he's a heretic? Well, I don't know, probably, but I like his books. It's Bryn Manning, and he writes, and he's struggling in his life with some things, and, and, he, and, and one of the things I remember is he found himself at this low point in life, and he's saying about himself, I am a sewer, I'm a sewer, I'm a great big sewer. And that's, as he looks in the mirror, that's what he's seeing. And it's a passage like this that helps correct that thing. No, you're not. Created in the image of God. You might have done some really dumb and stupid things, all right? And you, and you may be wishing, I, well, if I could take that back, and you can't. So what do I do with that? What we'll find this morning, what I hope God's drawing you to, is you run to your refuge. You run to the place of safety. That's why God has set these up. And specifically, and for this purpose, sometimes accidents happen. And in and, and, Numbers 35, it goes through and says, this is an intentional killing, and this is unintentional. And intentional spells it out. You kill somebody with a stone or, or iron or wood, and it goes through the whole thing in case somehow you didn't know what murder was, it tells you. But then it says, hey, this is unintentional. In fact, Deuteronomy 19 gives another example. It says, hey, look, you and your buddy, you go out into the woods, and y'all are going to go tree chopping, all right? what they did and you go out there and uh scott killow and i we were going tree chopping and he's on one tree and i'm on another tree and we got our axes and and we're swing you know we're, and we're having a tree chop and all of a sudden in a swing my axe head flies off of the of the wooden handle and strikes scott dead no i didn't mean to do that i like scott I didn't have anything against him. I didn't take him out in the woods for this very purpose. I dug no holes beforehand. It was truly an accident. But I'm left in a situation where I know that when blood is shed, that has to be atoned for. And in Scott's family, the way that it says it, the part that the, how the justice was served is that there was somebody in each clan, in each family, that was designated as the avenger of blood. It's true. In fact, if you went over to Ruth, the book Ruth, and you read about the kinsman Redeemer, it's the same word. The context is applied differently. It's the one who was responsible for those in the family, and it was the one who was responsible that in the case of death was out to avenge the blood. Now, this wasn't retribution. 
It's not, I mean, it's not vengeance, it's justice. That's how the justice system works. And if somebody is killed, the avenger of blood has to go and make that right by killing that person. Now, sometimes that happens by accident. And so what do you do? Well, in this case, Scott and I are out there, something happens to him tragically. The recourse for me is that I drop that axe handle and I begin to run for my life to a city of refuge. A few years ago, on Easter morning, I can't remember how many years it's been, probably six or seven, maybe eight years ago, and we had been watching the weather all week long, and um, well, still let me just say this, you, you might, this is insider information. Um, if, if you're a pastor, you're watching the Easter weekend forecast, is you're looking for somebody that's giving you a 20-day out, and you don't miss checking it until Easter, all right? And we knew that there was a severe possibility of rain. We wake up that morning, it's about 8.15, and there is a torrential downpour. In fact, we're all sitting up here thinking, oh man, nobody's going to be able to get to church. The roads were already flooding. Fritz Hager gets in his big truck, and he goes to Walmart and then to Target, and he buys all the umbrellas that they have. We still have them in a closet here. And uh, we had, you know, everybody we could find and uh, deacons and, oh, yeah, and we're running out to the cars and helping people get in. And we all sat here on Easter Sunday morning in sopping wet Easter clothes. But as you looked out this window here from the foyer, you looked out into the parking lot. You'd see people get out of their car, and it's like they were running for their life to get, you know, under the awning so that they wouldn't be completely separate. This is the scene. You're running for your life. You're doing all you can to get there. And the arrangement that God makes is that there is a place, there is a city of refuge that you can go. You can have your case heard. You can say, look, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do this. This was truly an accident. And I need safety from the avenger of blood that's on my heels. It wasn't an escape from justice. You still have to stand trial. You come before your peers, the, the congregation. You make your case. They decide, is it accidental? Was it unintentional? In fact, these cities were so important. One uh, Jewish tradition tells us that the roads leading to these cities were kept in excellent condition, and the crossroads were well marked with sign posts reading, Refuge, Refuge. And then runners were also stationed along the way to guide the fugitives. It's come this way, hurry. The guilt is not in question, it's the judgment. It's so what happens. To the judgment. What do you do about those that have died accidentally? Maybe it's your hand. How is justice served? 
Well, look with me, verse 7, 8, and 9. We'll finish this bit up. It says this in verse 7. It says, so they set apart Kadesh. He's going to name six cities, three on the west side, three on the east side. So, so they set apart Kadesh in the Galilee, uh, in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. In verse 8, and beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. And these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them. You didn't even have to be an Israelite. They took it that seriously. That anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Apparently, when you ran to the city, the gates were unlocked. There was a two-gate system. You could come in the first gate. You were stopped there, but you were safe. The avenger of blood, even if he was about to catch up with you, couldn't come past those gates. And then you stood there and you waited. Some elders would come. They would inspect your story. You'd say, look, this is what happened. And they would decide right there, okay, well, that sounds reasonable enough. You can come on in. Or if, you know, they see through some charade that you're playing and, and you're telling a big lie, they'll say, well, I'm sorry. You, no, you got to go back out there because um, somebody's waiting for you. That, that's how that went. But if they took you in, if they, if they harbored you, then they were responsible for your well-being. And there were six cities that were appointed. You couldn't run to just any city and claim refuge. You had to run to the city that was appointed. There wasn't any hope outside those cities. Furthermore, you were only safe find out from Numbers 35, you were only safe in the city while you stayed in the city. If for some reason you decide, oh, I'm going to take a picnic outside the city and the, and the avenger of blood caught up with you, well, that was your fault. Can't do that. But there was an expiration date on your time there. So the way that it worked is you went, you went to the city of refuge, there was a trial that was held, they deemed that you were innocent, but you still couldn't go back home. That would create all kinds of problems in your community. So you stayed in the city of refuge, and there, you stayed there for a period of time before you were able to go back home. You say, well, okay, what's the period of time? How do you know when you got to go back home? If you look at verse 6 one more time, it tells you right in the middle of verse 6 what the provision was. Until the time, or until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. When the high priest died... You were released and you got to go back home. It said that the families of the uh, family members of the high priest, um, particularly the mom you know, of the high priest, if she was still alive, would travel from uh, city of refuge to city of refuge and they would take gifts and blankets and they would give them to the people who were there for, you know, uh, for refuge. 
um, and they did that to try to win favor because what they didn't want is all these refugees waking up every morning praying for the high priest to die. It's true. Because when the high priest died, that death satisfied the atonement for the death that had taken place. Your life was not taken. The death of the high priest, that satisfied the atonement for what you were guilty of. See, some of you are already saying, oh, I see the light that it shines. I see what it points to. The high priest dies, what a day of freedom. But why the high priest? What was God's point? Well, it provided a statute of limitations. But it also painted this dramatic picture of redemption and atonement. The death of the high priest paid the debt for freedom for those who were guilty of manslaughter. Did the accused person, by the way, you find out, couldn't buy their freedom. It wasn't for sale. You couldn't pay your way out of the refugee city. It could only be purchased with the life of a high priest. And forgiveness was forgiveness. Didn't matter the degree or the intensity or the tragedy. Listen, murderers and liars, they, they'll go to hell if they don't trust Christ. By the way, so will all the good people that don't trust Christ. But murderers and liars can be saved in the same instant, under the same condition, with no lingering spiritual consequences, despite what they've done. See, see what, what it's pointing to and what Hebrews spends 13 chapters telling us is that we have a high priest And he's not just the high priest for the cases of manslaughter. He's the high priest for everything. It says, look, these sacrifices were being made. They were coming every day. And the blood of bulls and the blood of goats, maybe they satisfied that temporally and physically. But Hebrews makes the point that what it could not do is it couldn't cleanse your conscience all that the priests did and all that the Levites did and even all that, that, that the earthly uh, uh, Jewish high priests could do, all they could do was go through a motion that said, this counts for that, but it did nothing to you on the inside. You were left with a burden. You were left with the guilt. You went to bed at night thinking about it. You woke up in the morning thinking about it. You couldn't run far enough. You couldn't run fast enough. You couldn't scrub it away hard enough. In some ways, there was no refuge for your soul. 
There's no refuge for your mind. And the book of Hebrews makes the case is that when Jesus comes, he's the great high priest. And his sacrifice, his death, it atones for everything. It was a once and for all sacrifice. And God sent his son Jesus to take on humanity. Paul says he became our sin. He became everything we are so that we could become his righteousness. We could become everything he is. What we couldn't purchase with with our lives or our significance or all our good works or all our hard works, Christ comes. He pays the ransom. He pays the debt. And he turns and he offers it to us. He's the refuge. And his death brings with it not only forgiveness, but freedom. And God sets this up right in the middle of Israel as a foreshadow as, as a bright light pointing into what he means to do with us. The names of the towns are significant. You can look those up. They're easy, easy names to find. Each of them, each of the names of the cities of refuge point to a characteristic of Christ, of how he's our sanctuary. How he's our mighty fortress. How he's our means of fellowship and communion. How he's the cause of our rejoicing. Let me just say this morning, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, run, run, run to Christ. He is your refuge. You're every ever-present help in time of trouble. Well, chapter 21, I, I, if you've been reading ahead, um, I'm not going to read 40 of the verses. It's the names of all the Levitical cities, the other 42 that are being handed out to the Three, you know, tribes, offspring of Levi. But you wonder why it is that they're scattered. They don't get their own inheritance. We talked about that last week. But they do, they, they, are, they have a portion of each of the tribes. They, they live in the midst. And the, re, and the reason was, is they were there to administer to the nation. The teaching and the worship. The drawing people and teaching them how. What it means to be a covenant, in covenant relationship with God. That, that's what they did. They, they were responsible for the spiritual health of a community that they were inviting to draw near to God. It is exactly what Chuck Colley did this morning when he stood up here to pray. Not only praying for us and over us, but he was instructing us about prayer. He was exhorting us, you know, come and pray and come and, and, and pursue Christ's likeness. He was 
inviting us to draw close and then showing us how to do it. Believe it or not, Johnny Russell earlier, when he was doing announcements, is what he was doing. Look to that. Look with me, 43, and if you, if you got chapter 21, I'm going to start in verse 43. It's kind of the summary of everything up to this point. It says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he swore to their fathers not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the lord had given them their enemies into their hand not one word of all the good promises that the lord had made to the house of israel failed all came to pass all 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 Joshua is making the point God's faithful. He's faithful to every single thing that he has said. The failings, not with God. The times of our unfaithfulness, well, we, we get ourselves in a mess. But God has never failed, not once. And we're supposed to listen to that this morning and hear this. God hasn't changed. Not one thing of what God has said will fall away. Everything that God has promised will come to pass. It is still true for us. Everything necessary that we've needed to be in relationship with God, Christ has done for us. There will be a day, it's coming, God's promised that the kingdom, you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, that the kingdom will come. It's, it has come and it is coming. And we'll see it come to its fru, true, full fruition. Whole and complete. And in the meantime, it is coming. Everything God said he would do He's done. He's good. He's faithful. He can be trusted. Have you trusted him? Let me ask you this morning, when you woke up today, did, did the thought that God is trustworthy, that I can trust him, I can trust him with this day, I can trust him, I can trust him with every part of this day. I can trust him with every relationship, with every financial pressure, with every insecurity and anxiety. Do you know that you can trust him? And are you? David writes this in Psalm 46. Listen to these words and then I'll pray. God is our refuge and strength. Very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. 
though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. Kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then the invitation. You ready? Come. Behold the works of the Lord. How he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bound, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He is with us. He is for us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we, we confess we need your help this morning. In our hearts, in our minds, to be people that trust you, to believe what you say, that we'd wake up and count on what it is that you've said. Father, you, you bid us to come. You are our fortress. You are our refuge. Father, I know there's some this morning. That the avenger, whether it's taken the form of an of an anger that needs to be softened or a heart that needs to be broken or a relationship that needs to be healed or an anxiety that needs to be cast upon you. Father, there's worry this morning. There's tensions. There's heartache. And there's more. Father, you've said you, you're our refuge and you've made the way by the, by the life and the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus for us to come and to run to you to know freedom and forgiveness and healing. And so, Father, would you, would you make plain to us this morning what it is that, that's chasing us down? And Father, would we run to you realizing we do not have to run far at all. You are near. So Father, I pray you'd do that in us this morning. And we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.